we saw it and heard it break above him. For a split second, thought he was going to be okay. In all my years I have flown with the county, I think I never really have flown out anybody alive who has been in an avalanche in the Tetons. I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line by Backcountry Zero, a podcast that tells real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This episode is sponsored by StatRef, a product from Jackson-based Teton Data Systems. StatRef provides the latest healthcare information to students, researchers, and practicing clinicians. Find us online at statref.com. Renee Eder Garrett had been living in Jackson Hole for six winters. During the ski season, he worked at a local shop tuning skis. He'd found mentors willing to share their backcountry knowledge and successfully skied challenging lines in Grand Teton National Park. On February 4, 2016, Renee and two friends decided to attempt the Spoon Coular on Disappointment Peak. Renee had begun questioning the risks of backcountry skiing. After a lifelong friend died in an avalanche just a few weeks earlier, while working as a ski patroller in Montana. But on this day, the avalanche danger had been rated moderate, and Renee had skied this line several times before without any trouble. Renee and I have been friends for a few years. My name is Brian Close. I've been in Jackson for about 15 winters, had spent the majority of my time skiing backcountry and side country off of the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort or off of Teton Pass, have been wanting to explore new terrain and lines up in Grand Teton National Park. And I knew that Renee had a good knowledge base of lines and terrain to ski up there. I had started recruiting him probably about two winters previous to take me under his wing and show me some some stuff. That week, we had just touched base about skiing. We'd kind of said we wanted to get up and ski something fun, but not overly aggressive. I had skied it four other times in the past. You know, we had gotten six or seven inches over the past few days, and there was a north-northwesterly wind over that period of time. So felt comfortable with the line. We were starting early and thought it was a pretty good objective for the day. So yeah, I had to be at work at three o'clock, I think, that day. So we had decided to go early. We met in town at six. Three of us, Mike Bissett was the third member of our party. Pretty cold, but you know, the weather was supposed to be good that day. And made really good time. We found a day old skin track, so it was actually perfect. There was maybe like an inch or two of, you know, dust on top of the skin track and it was good to go. We cruised up. We were up at Amphitheater Lake in under three hours, I wanna say. The sun was out, it was beautiful sunrise. We were just feeling good, make you know, joking around. We skinned up to the mouth of the coular and then started bootpacking up the coular itself. And that turned into pretty slow going. We were wallowing pretty good. Went up, I don't know, a few hundred yards and switched over to the right side. The traveling was easier on that side. I'd definitely say that the clouds started to move in for sure. Yeah, pretty pretty slow going. It was like waist deep, you know, at an angle. So a couple feet of powder. And then at times there would be like a inch or so crust on the surface, like just a wind crust. We definitely took turns moving our way up. We were probably in the couloir for an hour or so until we made it onto the east face of Disappointment. I mean, maybe even more than that, but it was certainly the deepest conditions I had seen in that couloir specifically. It just seemed like there was just an endless depth of powder below you as you were trying to make each step up the couloir. 
the whole time up, uh, even before we were in the couloir, we're, you know, taking a look at the snow, punching our poles down, just like taking in our surroundings. And once we got into the couloir, talking that amongst ourselves that, you know, the snow is depositing on the left side of the couloir, that this is where we're seeing a certain deposit of snow based off the wind direction, doing little hand shear tests. We dug two pretty significant pits to assess the uh, weak layer that we thought might be there, roughly like 18 inches down, found some stuff about 12 inches down, but it was a real minor crust and everything above it was soft and we were constantly pulling at it, seeing if anything would move. Nothing was moving, you know, we didn't see any red flags. The visibility had definitely deteriorated um, by the time we were ready to go skiing. On the skier's right side, at the start of the couloir, there was a nice little flat spot with some trees, kind of gave it some definition, and we decided to stay on the ridge from the peak and ski down to those sets of trees and then assess how we were going to ski the couloir from there. I think on the way up, we did see that lookers left of the couloir, skier's right. You know, we had seen a bunch of snow deposits on that side of the couloir. We had booted up the right side of the couloir and the right side of the bowl, digging a few ant pits and just applying load to the slope. So we were certainly aware and conscious that the left side, lookers left, seemed to be the area that we were most concerned with. Had already sort of talked about a plan to ski cut the bowl, thinking that some soft slabs might release on that side and then get to an exposed raised rock on the other side of the bowl where we had literally just boot packed like feet away from. So that was like the plan that we had gone into thinking about how we were gonna mitigate the potential risk of a soft slab and also just test the slope before actually skiing it. I was pretty comfortable with the slope and felt like it was sort of my plan to go do this. So I, I, I'd certainly volunteered not thinking that anything would happen, but uh, just felt like it was somewhat of my responsibility to, to kind of do that and felt comfortable with it. Yeah, took a few side steps up to get some speed, zipped across from right to left across this kind of hole. Nothing was moving, which I had actually really anticipated some soft slab releasing. Got to this rock and got to the top of it and thought for one moment, like, this is gonna be amazing. It's gonna be, you know, waist-deep powdered all the way down to the car. And then Brian and Mike started yelling at me. You know, he said, here goes nothing. Started his ski cut, had pretty much reached the other side and stopped. We saw it and, and heard it break above him. For a split second, thought he was gonna be okay thought he was going to be able to anchor into the rock and let it all go by him because it, it wasn't a huge amount of snow. It was probably only like a six inch slab, but it was enough snow with enough force just with the terrain that he was in. It was, it swept him off his feet and then he disappeared within a matter of seconds down the couloir in a plume of, plume of snow. I mean, it washed over me. And for most of the time I was like, I'm going to be okay. Like this is just going to wash right over me. And then some block, hit my foot and like it immediately swept me off my feet like it was a, a a denser block of snow that just hit me just right i've thought about it you know pretty extensively at that point like when the the small little avalanche whatever you want to call it was coming at me there really wasn't a, i couldn't like 
ski down. Like I, there was no escaping it. It was just like, can this wash over you? Brace yourself, put all your force in, into keeping your skis on this snow that's right above this big rock. We were expecting it to break at his feet if anything was going to break. You know, we had just hiked up pretty close to what had broken uh, three of us, you know, 160 pounds plus, you know, three guys moving up through that area and we didn't get anything to go on approach. And so we, we really weren't expecting it to release where it did. In hindsight, thankfully, it did not break when we were hiking up right next to each other. If that had broken on the way up, then all three of us could have got buried or, all, you know, you never know what could have happened. But first of all, it's terrifying. <laughs> the split second that snow, you know, the block, the avalanche, whatever, knocked me off my feet and I'm in it. I mean, you have like one moment to realize what's going on. You're like, I'm at the top of a 14, 1600 foot couloir. I'm in an avalanche and this thing, this couloir pinches to however many feet, but it pinches. There's like rock exposures on each side of the exit. It's like jumping off a building. All of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm in the middle of the air. What's going to happen? Then it was just survival. I immediately got pulled under. My skis acted like anchors. Like the second I was in it, I was above it for one second, could see down the entire couloir, and then was pulled under. Luckily, my skis released. It's like fight or flight. Your body just realizes that it's in peril and your senses are heightened, your feelings are heightened, like everything about what who you are is like heightened to the point of survival. So it was just like almost calm. Like I was, my mind was clear. It was like your feet should be down, like ride it. Like you're in, you know, white water. I can't breathe. Like I tried to take a breath in or I spit snow out or something. And I took a breath in and I could like feel snow in like the middle of my throat. And I was like, okay, like, don't take another breath or don't even open your mouth. Just keep your mouth closed. Like, just weird, slow motion-y feeling. But it was violent. I mean, it was, I could tell I was going fast. I did have, like, a GPS watch on. I forget. It was, like, 30-something miles an hour was what my watch said at that point. And, like, my heart rate spiked to, like, 200 or something. The worst thing that happened was I smashed my left foot on a rock that completely sent me in a like tailspin. Like I didn't know where up and down was. I didn't know where I was. All I could think about was that I'm gonna hit my head. I'm gonna hit my chest. I'm gonna I'm gonna die. That was what I felt like after I impacted that rock because I started contorting and moving in a weird way around the snow and I didn't know where I was. Going down this water slide of a couloir, I was like tumbling and you know had like a helmet on, but it's like. That's not going to save you when you're going 40 miles an hour, you know, headfirst into a rock. Something I never really considered while skiing in the backcountry was, and I know people have considered this before, but I just, I, I didn't think about it, was that if you're in an avalanche, your ski poles, if you have your ski strap on, it actually acts like an anchor, like it pulls you down. You can't swim. Like you don't, you don't have that movement of your hand to try to like fight the surface. And I did have my ski straps on. And so I tried to fight to the top, but my hands were just being pulled like below my body almost. Yeah, it was a real surreal, strange moment. I don't 
really know how to explain it. <laughs> it was like as if all of a sudden time stood still and I could just like feel this pole strap like slowly being pulled off my right wrist. I didn't feel like I was in an avalanche. I just felt like calm and this strange feeling and it slowly slid off my wrist. I knew it was off my wrist, which I don't think you would normally know in an avalanche. Maybe I'm not sure, but it just, it was a very strange moment of like, you know, whatever you want to call it, divine intervention or just like very focused on something that needed to happen. But whatever did happen, all of a sudden my pole strap slowly was pulled off my wrist. And that gave me my right hand to try to fight for the surface as the avalanche was flowing. I could feel it slowing and I was under the snow and I, my mouth was full of snow and I was just thinking, I'm like, I'm not going to die. I don't want to die. And I just fought as hard as I could to get to the surface. And then all of a sudden, like it just stopped. I was rolling one second and then like immediately stopped. I was like trying to pull my right hand over my, my mouth, you know, whether it was for an air pocket, if I was buried or to potentially clear out my airway if if I was above the snow. So I held my hand there and snow came to a stop and it's like, okay, I need to open my eyes. I realized my eyes had been closed. Opened my eyes and my my left eye was under the snow still and my right eye was above the snow and my hand was right near my mouth my right fingertips and half the top of my right face were exposed and that was it. So I was happy, but I had to clear my airway out and barely was able to do that because I could almost not move my hands. And I cleared my airway out and coughed and <laughs> I just was in shock, like was just yelling or maybe I was talking to myself. I don't even know. I'm okay. I'm okay. And I was repeating that because I had to like wake myself up like I had I thought I was going to die and the fact that I was alive I sort of had to like remind myself that I wasn't dead because I had anticipated that I might so it was a strange few moments at that point I saw Mike uh being down the couloir the gear started like churning, like, how are we going to get out of this? I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line by Backcountry Zero, a podcast that tells real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This episode is sponsored by StatRef, a product from Jackson-based Teton Data Systems. StatRef, the premier healthcare e-resource, enables students, researchers, and practicing clinicians to intuitively cross-search full-text titles, journals, and evidence-based point-of-care tools. With nearly 600 resources within over 50 healthcare disciplines, StatRef provides the latest healthcare information in a customizable and convenient format. Find us online at statref.com. You know, when the pocket broke above him and and then he couldn't self-arrest and got swept down the couloir, you know, that all happened really fast and then it's definitely probably the scariest um you know moment i've ever had in the mountains is to watch a good friend get avalanche down a steep couloir 
you know, Mike and I looked at each other and we're like, and I, I think if I remember correctly, I looked at him and I said, what's the plan? And he said, you know, Renee might be buried. We need to get down there as fast as we can. And he took off and he shredded the spoon coolar like no other. I waited until I could see him exit it before I skied down because only half of the coolar had pulled out snow. The whole skier's right side was still a fresh canvas and then the the left side was what had broken and what had flushed through and I didn't want to slide him or bury Renee further. And so I was able to scoot out and see him exit and then I started skiing and I could hear them them yelling to each other. So I knew then that, you know, Renee was alive and that he wasn't fully buried, you know, he could breathe and, and communicate. And so I kind of had to take my time. It was, it was tough skiing, you know, after watching a good friend get swept down it. And then with the way the, the coolar only half flushed. So, uh, it's really impressive, um, how fast Mike was able to ski down to him. He came out of the coolar, pulled out his beacon and started searching back and forth. And I made some screeching noise and I could see him like, you know, perk up. Cause I was only like seven inches of my face, you know, was exposed. So he couldn't see me. The second he heard that he just perked up and I think he made like one turn and like skied down to me and he asked if I was okay. You know, I was like, I'm okay. My legs like shattered. And he was like, how's your neck, your spine? Like, did you impact anything else? And I was like, no, I just impacted my leg. And he immediately just took off his pack, grabbed a shovel and started digging me out. I called 911. I had self-service right there at the base of the coolar. I was able to get in touch with uh, 911 who put me through to the rangers in the park and you know they were able to take a little bit of information and then I I think the call dropped if I remember correctly. I'm Nicole Ludwig. Well, I probably was sitting around in a hangar and waiting for a call because most rescues, especially avalanche rescues, I would say happen in moderate and considerable conditions. That day was moderate. The page came out and said it was an avalanche in the Spoon Cool War in the Grand Teton Park. That makes normally my heart really drop. First of all, it's an avalanche and it is in the Teton. So in all my years, six or seven years, I have flown with the county. I think I never really have flown out anybody alive who has been in an avalanche in the Tetons. I'm sure the other pilots have flown people out, but me specifically, that was the very first person I really flew out alive. Renee was pretty much uncovered and in a lot of pain. You know, we had some extra layers that we put on Renee. I do carry a lot of stuff in my pack. First aid kit usually, some extra clothes, bivy sack and ski straps and all kinds of stuff. Mike had brought an ice axe. We used the ice axe and some ski straps to fashion a splint for his leg. We were still a little concerned about some hang fire, so we had decided to move him. I started stomping down a path, and Renee, um, with the help of Mike, was kind of scooching on his butt to get down away back into a flatter spot. You know, we had called 911 and they had talked to the park rangers, but we we weren't exactly sure what was happening. So it was one of these days where it was like obscured in the mountains and somewhat clear in the valley. We took off very well knowing that we might not reach the party, 
but um, I would say we always try. I did fly along the range and try to poke my nose into the cloud layers and see how it actually is. We passed the village and we just tried to like check it out a little bit and see what really is going on. And then um, we landed at the staging area just off the Moose Wilson Road. It's very easy for rangers to actually meet us there. When I landed at the staging area, I was very hesitant to say that we really can make it. Um, it was cold that day, and unfortunately, we were having some issues keeping the cell phones going. And so I took my phone and Renee's phone and put my skins on, started skinning up to a ridge to get better reception. I was able to get very spotty cell phone service, but miraculously, I was able to communicate with the park ranger. And he asked me a bunch of questions, you know, What's the visibility like up there? How far can you see? What's going on? Where are you guys? And, you know, he had said the whole time, he was like, we're trying to get a helicopter in the air, but the weather is deteriorating. I was standing on a ridge north of the Kular, and I was looking south, and he asked me, you know, what can you see? And I said, well, I can see the next ridge. And then he was like, well, you know, we're not sure what the feasibility of a helicopter is going to be, but we're trying. I hung up, skied back down to Mike and Renee and told them what I had found out. We had decided at that point that since the helicopter wasn't a certainty and it was getting later in the day with deteriorating weather that we should start moving. Renee. The way I felt initially was deflated. I mean, when Brian had come down off the ridge, he had been up there for a bit and uh, time was sort of like in and out. Like I was definitely in shock. I was aware of what was going on. Like I had taken some pain medicine that someone had and then like ibuprofens and I don't know if it was like hypothermic but I was certainly like starting to get very very cold even though I was in space blankets and three down jackets and um, we started moving them down towards the lake so I picked up at the staging area Case Morton and Jim Warren the two rangers who flew in with me when we finally decided to fly, it was pretty quick. It initially looked like I couldn't go straight. I couldn't fly a straight line. So I flew more direction Taggart Lake because I was hoping, well, I probably can make it somehow from the backside in. And I did fly up direction Delta Lake and then pretty much over that ridge line. The weather definitely cleared a little bit and we could hear the chopper. That was a pretty awesome feeling to hear it at first and then to see it. I finally saw that I could actually see into the next canyon, which it's not necessarily a canyon, but um, where amphitheater and Surprise Lake are. And there it was almost like a little bubble of clear or clear enough so that we were able to actually circle and spot them. I'd been sitting, Mike was like sort of, cradling me almost like I was sitting on backpacks I was off the snow to try to preserve any warmth that I had and he was like behind me bear hugging me uh, but I was still losing heat and getting cold so I mean we knew that we had to start moving so we just started moving I mean it, it was like put two fists behind you push move six inches do it again do it again eventually my left leg would like bend up and I'd have to like 
grab my calf and extend my leg and it was really painful leg ended up being broken in 22 places and i mean it was just like mush essentially but luckily it was in my boot and it wasn't compound so we were just you know making making our way down to the lake and all of a sudden you know heard this faint sound of the helicopter i just remember like being like we need to throw branches on the lake like i remember just like freaking out being like we need to give them a perspective depth perception like get branches throw them on the lake and like mike and brian were like grabbing these little branches off trees and trying to throw them on the lake and i was scooting as fast as i could down to the lake and then all of a sudden it came right up over the ridge i mean it was there did a couple passes I and mean, then i was just like i wasn't even thinking i was just like i need to get to the lake yeah they did this little nose landing where she popped in, kept the rotor on. So it's really difficult to make out any kind of shapes or anything if like the hillside slopes up and could possibly be a problem for the main rotor or even the tail rotor or the whole tail boom. It was interesting because just by that chance, um, the three guys came down pretty much in a funnel which had a few little trees and on the side a few big boulders. So right at the edge on the northwest side of the lake. And that was my chance to actually land close to the guys because that was what was imperative for this mission that we could land as close as possible to Rene because it had to go really, really fast because weather closing in on us again. So in the helicopter, as we had landed, I told case that he really had to get out and get Rene and get him back to the helicopter and get him in because I really wanted to leave. I really wanted to get out because it was clear that that weather window wouldn't last forever. Definitely didn't want to get stuck up there. Ranger popped out. Him and Mike basically grabbed Rene by his backpack straps and dragged him across the lake and chucked him in the helicopter and they were gone within probably a matter of, I don't know, two or three minutes maybe. The ranger said something to the effect of like, this is going to hurt like hell, but we're getting you out of here. And they just dragged me like to the helicopter, threw me in. You know, he was really cold. That was very obvious. He was shivering when he got into the helicopter. My, most of the time, I only have a chance to say hello and how are you? And well, you will be back in safety soon. Then the other ranger jumped out. He stayed with Mike and Brian the helicopter took off. I mean, it was like a matter of a minute from when the helicopter landed till it took off again. To be in like the warm embrace of like safety, that was the most overpowering feeling than the pain. Dr. Heidi Yost put my leg back together. Like I said, it was in 22 pieces. I've got 12 screws, big six-inch plate in my ankle. It was a slow recovery. I've injured myself uh, a handful of times, torn my knee a few times and broken plenty of bones. But this was the most extensive injury I've ever had. And also just the, uh, beyond the physical injuries, psychologically, it was, it was very difficult. Um, I had a lot of, you know, PTSD and I'd wake up in the middle of the night and think I was in an avalanche. And even to this day, I still you know, we'll have that from time to time. This is a, a long road, and it still bothers me. I mean, I can walk, I can't run, I can mountain bike and road bike, can't ski. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and it's achy and sore and swollen. I mean, it's, 
just been over a year, uh, and they said that the full recovery, if that is such a thing, you know, would be sometime in the 18 months to two year time frame. You know, without, you know, my girlfriend, Zeely, and my brother, and Brian, and Mike, and like, without everyone there, like, supporting me, I mean, it would have been a lot, a lot more difficult to have the community of Jackson sort of come together, like, for months, you know, really. People would be coming over to the house with dinners, with lunches, just, it was like a constant stream of people for a very long time. The littlest event can turn into big trouble, depending upon the terrain you're in, because this, you know, was not a big avalanche by any means. It just happened to be in a steep chute that, you know, he couldn't hold on and he got swept down and sustained a pretty serious injury. You know, you never can be certain about what's going to happen in the mountains. You know, you carry a backpack for a reason. You should be prepared for the worst to happen, whether that's with, you know, extra clothes or painkillers in your first aid kit or a bivy sack. You know, we were, we were fortunate that, you know, it was three longtime Jackson locals with experience in the mountains, and we had a lot of stuff with us to help with the situation. You just don't know. I had Abby one, Abby two, been up in the mountains for years, had amazing mentors that showed me the ropes, you know, really taught me by experiences to the correct way to assess conditions, the correct way to approach a slope, the correct way to plan an adventure. And, you know, there's people that have been doing this for 20, 30 years and they've acquired lots of information. You certainly have a knowledge and you certainly have an expertise in something, but there is that X factor and there's that factor that you, you just don't know. I mean, things can happen. And, and I guess that that was my biggest takeaway. I mean, I felt like I certainly had made some mistakes in the mountains in the past and got away with it. And by, you know, huge margin did not think we were embarking on the adventure we were embarking on i mean the conditions were moderate the you know red flags were zero throughout the entire trip we did not anticipate this uh, but i guess that's the whole point and when it did i feel like we acted in unison we communicated we came up with a plan we had the equipment, whether it was ski straps, duct tape, paracord, whatever it was that we might need, we had, that was nice to know. Like, it's nice to know when you go into the mountains, you go into the mountains with people that you trust. You go into the mountains with people that you believe that if some the worst were to happen, they would act and, you know, be able to function at the highest level. And I think that in this experience, that was exactly what it was. Like, Mike and Brian were on it. They were like, he's injured. Here's what we need to do. Let's do it. You know, for me, that was like reassuring to have people around me that I completely trusted going into it. And then that was just reinforced by what happened. I guess on a different note, I could say that I'm a very different person now. <laughs> like, I've moved from Jackson. I've really decided that I didn't want to uh, expose myself to those risks because I've seen what, what it can do. Got a really close friend just weeks before 
die in an avalanche. He was a ski patroller up in Montana. So I saw firsthand the toll that a death like that takes on the loved ones around you. And then having nearly put all my loved ones in that situation, I just decided it, it wasn't worth it for me. I think the biggest takeaway was that we were able to handle the situation, that we were able to act accordingly, and and really that Teton County Search and Rescue and everyone was there willing to sacrifice their lives, essentially, to save us and to save me and to bring me to safety. It's really a huge advantage to a backcountry skier to trust the people that you're going skiing with, that trust that they know how to use a beacon, they trust that, that you guys are on the same page. You never know when your life's gonna depend on that person you go skiing with. I mean, I, I would be remiss if I didn't just thank Brian and Mike. I feel uh, a strong bond with them because of the situation, and I'm certainly grateful that they were there that day because I'm just glad I'm here. Thanks, buddy. I'm glad you're here, too. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.